0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 225, Alfred in Somerset. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Megan, Taylor, and Charlene for signing up already. Also, a big congrats to our youngest listener, Alia, who spent the first 18 months of her life in hospital, but is now healthy and with her parents. We're all really glad you found your way home, Alia. It was January of 878, the dead of British winter, and Alfred was running. Through fields, past hamlets, keeping out of sight wherever he could, he ran he was headed west for the Somerset Levels. This was a coastal plain during the 9th century, a dense network of impassable marshes. It wasn't ideal, but at least Alfred would be difficult to find there. Much like the Fens had protected East Anglia from numerous overland invasions, Alfred hoped the nigh-impenetrable swamps of Somerset would grant him safety. And so he ran. With him was only a small number of supporters, Probably only his closest companions, just a few nobles, and maybe his hearth were odd. That was all. His family wasn't with him. They likely had been left behind at Chippenham. We don't know if that was his plan, or whether they were unable to be reached during the chaos that followed Guthrum's attack. Perhaps as the Danes approached, Alfred had dispatched them to another safe harbor under the care of a small group of supporters. Perhaps they were captured before anyone knew what was happening. We don't know, and Alfred might not have known either. We just know that Alfred ran. He was leaving everything behind. Only this morning, he held the throne of Wessex and was entitled to the fealty of all the nobles therein. But now, he just had a handful of comrades in arms. And doubt. Probably crushing doubt. The inescapable truth was that Guthrum's attack was too well-timed. Too well targeted. Finding Alfred at Chippenham while their guard was down wasn't just luck. Someone must have told Guthrum where he was and when to strike. So who snitched? Someone must have. Unfortunately, we don't know, because we're given almost no details on how this night played out. And that lack of information is in keeping with how scribes of this period tended to write. But it still feels rather suspect to leave out so many details. And some authors have argued that the opaqueness of this attack was by design. And that Alfred was deliberately trying to hide the fact that he was the victim of a coup. I can absolutely see where those authors are coming from. There are aspects of this story that have traitor written all over it. And I can imagine that Alfred was working over the facts in his mind, trying to suss out who he could trust. And who deserved vengeance? If this was the case, a cloud of suspicion would have hung over this little band as they fled west as fast as they could. But unfortunately, all the Chronicle tells us is that quote, "he, with a little band, uneasily sought the woods and fastnesses of the Moors end quote." Uneasily was likely a bit of classic English understatement. Consider the sheer shock of what Alfred was experiencing. Not only had he lost his kingdom, not only did he have a traitor or traitors in his midst, not only was the fate of his family uncertain, but the conditions the former king would have found himself in would have been unlike anything he'd ever experienced in his life up until this point. While Alfred's life hadn't been easy, it certainly wasn't difficult either, not by 9th century standards. He was raised in court, and the only time that he was removed from the halls of power was when his older brother Athelbald had demanded it. But now, there was no court. There were no feasting halls, no libraries, no estate rooms with roaring fires. There was nowhere for him to retreat to as the biting cold of winter seeped into his bones. Nowhere for him to rest, get a change of clothes, or eat a hot meal. There was just the swamp, and all the harshness that winter could bring. This reality becomes all the more dire given the state of Alfred's health. Most scholars now agree that Alfred had Crohn's disease, and immunodisorders like that don't react well to stress. One of the mysterious qualities of these illnesses is that they tend to express themselves with a vengeance whenever the sufferer is going through emotional turmoil. And considering that this was likely the most emotional and physical stress that Alfred had ever been through, you could be pretty sure that his crones was making itself known. The poor guy was probably doubled over in pain and frequently sneaking away from the group with a handful of leaves. And there was probably a faint metallic odor wafting through the camp as he returned to his men, likely looking a bit more pale than he had before. Uneasy is not the word for it. This would have been a horror show from start to finish. Now Asser is a bit more frank, and he tells us, quote, King Alfred, with a few of his nobles and certain soldiers and vassals, was leading in great tribulation an unquiet life among the woodlands and swamps of Somersetshire, quote. Great tribulation. Unquiet. Now that sounds a bit more true to me. Alfred's situation was bad. He must have felt moments from death at all times, whether by the hands of the Northmen or the betrayal of his own body. As they ran, Guthrum's attack in their pitiful situation must have been all he and his men could think about. In moments when they could speak, when they allowed themselves to catch their breath, whatever conversations or arguments they could drum up would have likely been fueled by fear, suspicion, rage, grief, and guilt. This was nothing short of a catastrophic trauma for all of them. But work needed to be done. They couldn't simply fall on their swords and quit. If that was what they wanted, they could have stayed in Chippenham. But they were here, wading through the marshes. And the first thing that they needed to do was find somewhere safe and preferably dry. The king was sickly. And living out in the open in the marshes during winter was a danger to even the healthiest of warriors. The longer it took, the more likely it was that all of them would get trench foot or something worse. But one point in their favor was that as inhospitable as this region was, it wasn't entirely unknown, nor was it permanently uninhabited. There were dry spots, safe spots that could be found in the Somerset Levels. And one of those places was an island deep within the marshlands. This island was once used by the ancient people who inhabited these lands long before the Saxons or even the Romans came to Britain. It backed up against the river Tone, and on all other sides it was bounded by swamps. It was an island that could only easily be reached by boat, which made it an ideal safe harbor. And while we don't know what the Britons called it, Alfred called it Athelney, Noble's Island. But it wasn't exactly noble. It was small, it was short, it was covered in rough shrubs. And I wonder if the name Alfred gave it wasn't some sort of dark joke. More likely, they named it after the fact that Alfred had retreated there, and that it was the refuge of the last free nobles of Wessex. But I do like the idea of Alfred and his men enjoying the irony of this new seat of West Saxon power. Athelney would have been a significant change in lifestyle for all of them. Do you remember how shocking the Great Recession was? How suddenly people who had retired had to go to work again, and how many of us had to move in with friends and parents to make ends meet? How many of us couldn't afford the same groceries, and found ourselves learning how to mend clothes because we couldn't afford to get new ones? The whole experience was unsettling, leaving us all feeling unsafe and exposed. Well, this would have been that experience multiplied. Simply making a space for encampment probably involved a lot more chopping, hauling, and clearing than many of the nobles of Nobles Island ever had to do in their entire lives. But Athelney was dry. At least drier than what surrounded it. And it would be difficult for Guthrum to reach. Moreover, it wasn't completely cut off from the outside world they could still reach East Ling by taking a careful route. And from there, they would be able to hear of news or even secretly move throughout Wessex if they desired. And this passage to East Ling was an important route for Alfred's men. And while the landscape may have already been formed into a rough causeway, this was such an incredible advantage for the fledgling army of exiles that they probably went about reinforcing it and thus laid down the bases for the Baltimore Wall but the ancients who once ruled these lands had also left Alfred a gift on Noble's Island. Hidden under the scrub was a semicircular ditch. It was all that remained of an old Iron Age fortress. It wasn't much, but Alfred knew that that ditch could be augmented by ramparts and a shelter could be erected in the middle. The ancient Britons had begun his fortress for him. He just needed to finish it. Now all of them, Alfred, his followers, his hearth were odd. All of them would have been exhausted. They would have been heartsick. They would have been shamed. They would have been terrified. But even with all of that, they still set to work. We don't know exactly when Alfred found Athelney, but we know that he did hold it and that he had a fortress there by the end of Easter. And we know that because that's what Asser tells us. But as for when Alfred first arrived, well, that part is left off the record. But the fact of the matter is that Alfred did need somewhere safe and at least partially dry and secluded. And considering that there were no other mentions of outposts in the record, and considering how long it would have taken for his small little band to build a fortress, Athelney seems like it would have been a base of operations from the very earliest of days we have something else that hints to us that Noble's Island was Alfred's base from the beginning. Folklore. As soon as I mentioned Athelney, a number of you were probably expecting to hear a story that's been told to school children for as long as anyone alive can remember. And it's a story that many people hold close to their hearts. I speak, of course, of Alfred and the Cakes. If you're not familiar with this story, here it is. Quote, There is a place in the remote parts of English Britain far to the west, which in the English is called Athelney, and which we refer to as Atheling's Isle. It is surrounded on all sides by vast salt marshes and sustained by some level ground in the middle. King Alfred happened unexpectedly to come there as a lone traveler. Noticing the cottage of a certain unknown swineherd, as he later learned, he directed his path towards it and sought there a peaceful retreat. He was given refuge, and he stayed there a number of days, impoverished, subdued, and content with the bare necessities. Reflecting patiently that these things had befallen him through God's just judgment, he remained awaiting God's mercy through the intercession of his servant, Naot. For he had conceived from Naot the hope that he nourished in his heart. Whom the Lord loveth, says the apostle, he chastiseth. He scourgeth every son whom he adopteth. In addition to this, Alfred patiently kept the picture of Job's astonishing constancy before his eyes every day. Now, it happened by chance one day, when the swineherd was leading his flock to their usual pastures, that the king remained alone at home with the swineherd's wife. The wife, concerned for her husband's return, had entrusted some of the needed flour to the oven. As is the custom among countrywomen, she was intent upon other domestic occupations, until, when she sought the bread from the oven, she saw it burning from the other side of the room. She immediately grew angry and said to the king, unknown to her as such, Look here, man! You hesitate to turn the loaves, which you see to be burning, yet you're quite happy to eat them when they come warm from the oven. But the king, reproached by these disparaging insults, ascribed to them his divine lot. Somewhat shaken, and submitting to the woman's scolding, he not only turned the bread, but even attended to it as she brought out the loaves when they were ready. And thus ends the story of the very first episode of the Great British Bake Off. Now, if you're using this story as evidence of what happened in history, you're going to run into all sorts of issues, not the least of which being that the earliest records that we have of this story don't appear until at least 100 years after the events took place. Furthermore, Asser doesn't mention the cakes, nor does the chronicle. Consequently, scholars pretty much universally agree that this was a myth. Now, in the history of St. Cuthbert, which is from the late 11th century, There's another story of Alfred that you might be familiar with. The story of Alfred and the beggar. And this one, like the cakes, starts out with Alfred on Athelney. He was low on provisions and things were starting to look bad for the king when a beggar came along and asked for help. No one seemed to think that it was odd that someone was begging in the swamp. No one said, hey, what was your plan? Everyone just took it in stride. And Alfred gave the beggar some of his last remaining food. Thereafter, the beggar disappeared. But the next day, they caught three boatloads of fish. Then later on in the evening, the stranger returned, and he revealed that he was actually St. Cuthbert all along. And yes, this is the same St. Cuthbert who was buried at Lindisfarne and who was already taken two post-mortem road trips with his monks. And once he revealed himself to Alfred, it was clear that Cuthbert's begging was a form of divine test. And Alfred passed. So Cuthbert told him that Alfred and his sons would be protected. Not only that, but he foretold that Alfred and his sons would be the kings of all of Britain. I'm not sure how Cuthbert intended to carry out that promise, considering that Alfred had nothing but a handful of men, a damp island, and apparently three boats of fish. But, he made the promise, so I'm assuming he had some sort of plan. Personally, I'm hoping that it was a bit like the undead army from Return of the King. That part was awesome. Now, much like the cakes, scholars also believe that this story was a myth. Not just because it was written about 200 years after the fact, but because it also includes a f***ing zombie. So those are the stories, and some of you might be wondering why I included them when they're rejected by scholars. Well, the first reason is so that you can know that they're myths. I mean, they're fun myths, but they're just myths. Second, because they might be giving us hints of what was going on behind the scenes. Asser and the Chronicle don't tell us all that much about what Alfred was up to during these early days in Somerset. In fact, it requires a tremendous amount of research into wildly disparate written sources and archaeology to even start to scratch at the surface of what was going on here and why. But things like these stories might illuminate the darkness just a little bit. Because stories and myths for us aren't necessarily the same thing as stories and myths during Alfred's time. Don't forget who these people were and what their culture was. While the Anglo-Saxons did have scribes writing things down, and the tradition of Bede hadn't fully vanished from the war-torn lands of Britain, written history was still a novel thing. It wasn't mainstream. Sure, it's what we trust now, and we act like if people weren't writing things down then there wasn't any sort of record. You know, like there wasn't any sort of historical knowledge. But that's not the case. The Anglo-Saxons had a rich tradition of oral histories. They weren't alone in this either. Oral histories are as common as human beings. For as long as there have been humans, we have probably been telling stories of who we are, where we come from, and what we've done. And the thing about cultures that have oral histories is that their memories tend to be better than ours. Lacking the crutch of being able to record thoughts on paper and then set them aside for later, illiterate cultures develop and train their minds to retain things without any written aid. And make no mistake about it, the Anglo-Saxons during this period were highly illiterate. So where did these stories come from? Well, we don't know. But we do know that Alfred had been waging a war for hearts and minds since he first took the throne, perhaps even before. He was well-read, quick-witted, and he had shown that he had a knack for diplomacy, He even showed keen foresight, laying down groundwork for the idea of a collective English identity, something that could allow him to lay claim to other English kingdoms and would also allow him to recast this war as being part of an island-wide war of cultures. Us versus them. And suddenly, we have the appearance of two stories surrounding this particular point in Alfred's life, centering on the very island that he was hiding on, And plotting his next move and they weren't stories of heroic battles they weren't stories that would inspire a noble to raise his furred they were something else alfred's sorrow is cast in a divine light we're invited to see him as seeking salvation but at the same time he's shown to be human becoming distracted by his burdens and being a bit like a fish out of water when he lets the cakes burn, it's because of how much weight was on his shoulders. It's something that an audience under deep economic, cultural, and political distress could probably relate to. And when he's chastised by the swineherd's wife for being quite content to eat food, but can't bring himself to take care for its production, he accepted the scolding, and he didn't make any mention of the fact that he was kink. What we're given is the portrait of a thoughtful, sorrow-filled man who is the very model of humility. So we're seeing him not just in a divine light, but also as a man of the people. And then you have the story of Alfred giving food to a beggar in the swamp, even though he was low on provisions, and how that resulted in him gaining three miraculous boats of fish, and even the blessing of St. Cuthbert. Now, personally, I suspect the original story centered simply around the beggar and the fish. I think that Cuthbert might have been added later in, because it feels a bit tacked on. But regardless, we have another story that casts Alfred as a man of the people. Someone who's capable of great acts of charity, even when he's at his lowest point. We're being told that Alfred isn't just a Christian king. He's a Christ-like king. He's aligned with beggars, he treats women with respect and dignity, he's humble, he's charitable, he even has a miracle involving fish. And that's important because the image of fish is one of the earliest Christian symbols on record. Virtually all the things that are highlighted in these stories are things that would have carried enormous weight among Christians familiar with the stories, images, and teachings of the church. So what we're looking at are stories that are built around forming a collective identity. They're taking symbols that the people are already familiar with and attached to, and they're wrapping Alfred in them. He's being dressed in the mantle of cherished beliefs, and we're told how he treats beggars, peasants, and women with respect. And these stories just happen to be set at exactly the time when Alfred first arrived on this soggy little island and was trying to work out what to do next. Think about that. They're not set at a time when Alfred was on the run or when Alfred had already begun his campaign to retake Wessex. They're set right now, right at the point when he most needed the support of the peasants. I think that might be an important piece to this puzzle. Alfred was about to engage in one of the oldest forms of war. This wouldn't be a direct conventional fight. He didn't have the manpower for that. If he wanted to win his war would need to be fought as a rebellion. And to do that, he would need provisions. He would need passerbys to stay quiet when they saw his forces move throughout Wessex. He would need informants to tell him where Guthrum was going. And while he wouldn't have used these words, what Alfred was about to do was launch a guerrilla war. And to do that, he would have to have the support of the peasants. If they didn't support, supply, and hide him, His war would be over before it began. And not just the male peasants. He needed all the peasants on his side. He needed men and women. Women are the oft-forgotten heroes of revolutions. But they've been involved in every revolution that we know of. It's a foolish person who forgets that. And Alfred doesn't seem to have been all that foolish. And we just happen to have stories centering around this time at Athelney. And their stories that weren't directed at the nobility. But instead, they were focused like a laser at the poor and upon women. And if this was anyone else, I might have just cast these away as nothing more than myths. But Alfred was something of a marketing genius. He was like the Steve Jobs of his day, but with better hygiene. And having stories that cast Alfred in this light would have aided him in his first and most important task inspiring support from the peasantry and the church. To be very clear, based on the records that we have, we can't say when these stories first started being spread around. But if I was Alfred and I was waging a war to retake my kingdom, I would certainly want stories like these circulating around the countryside. They might even help inspire some of the nobles, since tales of righteousness would be vastly preferable to tales about how he got his bleeding noble butt handed to him in battle and just lost the whole kingdom at Chippenham. This was a war of forging a new collective identity and giving it a shared meaning. And Alfred seems exactly like the sort of guy to have waged this kind of war. And at last, he had found a fight for which Guthrum was wholly unprepared. So Alfred and his men set to work. They had a base of operations, and it was as secure as they could hope for. But that wouldn't be enough. Provisions would have to be acquired. Rumors of the wickedness of Guthrum and the righteousness of Alfred would need to be spread. Contact would need to be made with friendly locals. Informants would need to be cultivated, and recruits would need to be gathered. Dodging through the marshes, staying out of sight, and moving carefully along the causeway, Alfred and his men ran they were headed back to Wessex. This was day one of their war. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. At Wareham, in exchange for a Dane guild, Alfred asked Guthrum to provide hostages and swear oaths of peace upon Christian relics. But what else did he include to safeguard those oaths? Question two. When the oath failed and Guthrum led a night attack out of Wareham, where did they flee to? Question three. 120 longships arrived at around the same time as Guthrum's occupation of Wareham. What happened to them? Question four, what does Dublin translate to? Question five, in the ninth century, Dublin began to be well known in the region. What was it known for? Question six, when Guthrum was ousted from Wessex in 877, He marched into Mercia and seized lands there. Among the people who received gifts of land from Guthrum was, surprisingly, King Cheowulf of Mercia. Why might that have happened? Question seven. King Charles the Bald of Francia died in 877. How was his body preserved? Question eight. At around Twelfth Night in 878, Alfred was the victim of a surprise attack by Guthrum, and he lost his kingdom at Chippenham. Given the scale and effectiveness of this attack, what do some scholars suspect happened there? Question nine. After Chippenham, where did Alfred flee to? Question 10. The stories of Alfred and the Cakes and the visitation by zombie Cuthbert are now accepted as just mythological tales of Alfred's hiding. But what purpose did those stories serve back in the day? All right, let's see how you did. Question one. At Wareham, in exchange for a Dane guild, Alfred asked Guthrum to provide hostages and swear oaths of peace upon Christian relics. But what else did he include to safeguard those oaths? He wanted Guthrum to swear upon his own arm ring, probably thinking that that would involve the pagan gods somehow. Question two. When the oath failed and Guthrum led a night attack out of Wareham, where did they flee to? They went to Exeter and took that city instead. Question three, 120 longships arrived around the same time as Guthrum's occupation of Wareham. What happened to them? They were caught in a fog and shipwrecked off the coast near Pool Harbor. Question four, what does Dublin translate to? The Blackpool. Question 5. In the 9th century, Dublin began to be well known in the region. What was it known for? It was a Scandinavian slave trading settlement. Question 6. When Guthrum was ousted from Wessex in 877, he marched into Mercia and seized lands there. Among the people who received gifts of land from Guthrum was, surprisingly, King Cheowulf of Mercia. Why might that have happened? It's possible that Guthrum seized lands from Cheowulf's enemies, and he was giving those lands back to Cheowulf in exchange for his complicity in the invasion. And Cheowulf allowed it because he was weak, given that his benefactor, Halfdan, had recently died. Question 7. King Charles the Bald of Francia died in 877. How was his body preserved? They removed his intestines, stuffed him full of wine, herbs, and flowers, and then they stuffed him into a barrel lined with pitch and animal hides. It didn't work. Question 8. At around Twelfth Night in 878, Alfred was the victim of a surprise attack by Guthrum, and he lost his kingdom at Chippenham. Given the scale and effectiveness of this attack, what do some scholars suspect happened there? They think Alfred was the victim of a coup, Question 9. After Chippenham, where did Alfred flee to? He fled to the marshes of Somerset, and later, Athelney. Question 10. The stories of Alfred and the Cakes, and the visitation by Zombie Cuthbert, are now accepted as just mythological tales of Alfred's hiding. But what purpose did those stories serve back in the day? They presented Alfred as a Christ-like king and his subjects would have been very attached to that viewpoint. I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.